Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Sarah and I have talked many times about our desire to age as gracefully as possible, and skincare is a huge piece of that. I spend a lot of time and money thinking about my skin, and I have added Ritual to my routine, which just gives me a lot of comfort. Ritual is here for us. They have created a wrinkle support skin supplement and conducted clinical studies, so we know it's working. They're taking the guesswork out of skincare. Ritual Hyacera is one of several Ritual products that I love. I take the daily multivitamin, I take a probiotic, And Hyacera is that once daily skincare supplement that is clinically proven to reduce wrinkles and fine lines and increase skin smoothness in 90 days. I recently met a friend for the first time in person as opposed to online. And we were discussing the fact that I am 43 and she said, I cannot believe how young you look. And I thought, thank you Ritual for that. Start Hyacera to help minimize wrinkles without compromising on clean science. Hyacera from Ritual is a clinically proven skin supplement you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com slash pantsuit. Start Ritual or add Hyacera to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash pantsuit for 25% off. One of the things that was really, you know, prevalent in, in kind of that national conversation after that shooting was the rate at which the Amish forgave the shooter and the rate at which the community really came together. This is Sarah. This is Beth. You're listening to Pantsuit Politics, the home of grace-filled political conversations. Nuance Nation is in full swing. Next up, Michigan with Representative Haley Stevens in Troy, Michigan on September 14th. Then we'll be heading to Louisville to have a conversation with Amy McGrath on September 28th. And then we're ha- we've got tickets for sale. Yay! For Dallas and D.C. So get the link in the show notes and get your tickets and come see us live. We're so excited. We hope that you all had a wonderful Labor Day weekend today. Because of that holiday, we are going to share with you a very special conversation that Sarah had about, if I don't make it, I love you, survivors in the aftermath of school shootings. This is a harrowing collection of 70 narratives covering over 50 years of shootings in America, written by those most directly affected by school shootings, the survivors. The editors, Amy Archer and Lauren Kleinman, reached out to me and asked me to contribute. It was a total blessing and honor to be a part of all these survivors of school shootings coming together and sharing their perspectives. We had a really, really great conversation. It was a healing conversation for me to talk about what the stories among the survivors have in common and how they differ 
And what everybody can take away from these stories, they're also leading a campaign right now to send the book to every single United States senator in the hopes that these first-person perspectives will push the conversation on legislative change forward. I think the work that they've done is so vital and so important, and I'm so happy they came on the show to talk about it. The book comes out today. Tuesday, September 3rd. So it is now available for purchase. You can get it wherever you purchase books. And without further ado, Amy and Lauren. I am so excited to be joined today by Amy Archer and Lauren Kleinman, the editors of If I Don't Make It, I Love You, Survivors in the Aftermath of School Shootings. I'm also thrilled to be a contributor to the anthology and to have them here for an interview which will publish on the book's birthday, on the day the book comes out. So Amy and Lauren, welcome so much to Pantsuit Politics. Thank you. Hi, thank you. Now, tell everyone a little bit about your backgrounds and what led you to put together this amazing book. So I am a writer. I'm also a mom. And so I felt that Lauren and I had worked together on a previous anthology, and it was called My Body, My Words, and we worked with writers writing letters to their bodies. And when that was finished, we really, which is a rare thing in the art world, we really loved working together, and we (laughs) found that we just collaborated really well. So we wanted to do another project, and uh, we, we sat down and we both knew that we wanted to do something surrounding gun violence. And so that's what brought us to this project. We started with the question, whatever happened to the kids who survived Columbine? Because like most people in this country, I was unaware of Heath and I was unaware of Thurston and the shootings that had come before. So we started with that question and that's uh, what brought us here. And as, as writers, I am a memoirist and Lauren has written memoir and poetry as well. We are really aware of the power of the personal story. And we felt that this was an aspect that was missing in this issue. Yeah. And I think that, you know, that Amy really sums that part up. I mean, I I would also add to that, that we're both teachers. So I think there's a natural, you know, part, I mean, at least in me, and I'm, I'm sure I can speak for Amy when I say this to, as writing teachers to want to help people tell their story. So I think that was kind of a natural part, a part of this process. I think, you know, in addition to me being a writer, I, you know, I also write a lot about my own experience with being a rape survivor. And I think there's been a lot of, for me, you know, a lot of interest in, you know, how do you go from, you know, experiencing X trauma to be able to talk about that? And how does that heal you or free you? in a way. So that was really of interest to me, even though I, you know, I didn't have direct experience with gun violence. There was still that part of me that really wanted to work with, or who always wanted to work with survivors from all different kinds of, of trauma. So that's been really important for me in terms of, you know, the power of story and how personal storytelling also leads to social justice. So how many survivors contributed to the book? We have 84. Wow. And so what is the range of how long ago was their shooting to how how mm-hmm. recent was their shooting? Yeah, that's um, you know, we we covered from 1966, the uh oh, the one in of Texas. Texas. Wow. Yes. 
the tower shooting. Um, you know, horrifyingly so, there are way more, mm-hmm. you know, shootings that have happened throughout history. I mean, you can go back, you know, to early century, you know, century before, and you find a lot of pockets of, you know, especially as guns, you know, I would say became more prominent in terms of when you're using that to claim your territory, et cetera. So it was a little bit more in use during, you know, during that time. And then, so we bring it from 1966, you know, to the Santa Fe shooting, um, you know, in May, 2018, unfortunately there's still more shootings, mass shootings that are happening. So, you know, it's, it's still an extensive timeline, you know, when, when you think about it. And I think what's been really interesting and, you know, what Amy and I kind of talked about was how we reverse the chronology of, you know, that we, we start with, you know, the Santa Fe shooting and we end with, the the Texas Tower shooting. Well, that's what I think is so interesting is when you talk about using this to um, deal with the trauma, I think to have that broad range, like as someone, you know, who experienced a shooting in high school, I would be so interested to hear from somebody from the 1966 shooting to see mm-hmm. how that affects you later in life. Like it's almost like it can start, it's not just to help the individual person work through their trauma by telling their story, but it's also in the sharing and hearing of other people's story. It can almost serve like a guidebook, which I'm devastated that we need such a thing, but to allow someone, especially coming upon this experience for the first time and to, to, to follow those stories and to see how people deal with them the further away they get from the trauma. I think that's such a, like a great concept and a powerful gift to other survivors. Oh yeah. Yeah. And it's really the story of each chapter is the story of a community, mm-hmm. you know, he overcame this and healed in their own way as did Columbine, as did Sandy Hook. So it's interesting to not only see how the survivors survived and persevered, but it's interesting to see, you know, how the support that the country gave them changed, how the media coverage yeah. changed. It's really a snapshot in history, each little chapter. It's really the story of a community yeah. and a time in our country. So it's it's pretty interesting to also look at that. Yeah, it's really fascinating yeah. from my perspective um, as a survivor, and particularly with Heath. I know that it doesn't have the um, historical impact of Columbine, but we definitely felt a lot of national support. I can still remember how the halls smelled filled with flowers. We got letters from everywhere. And the narrative, particularly in the media from our community, was that we were this hyper-Christian community and that, I mean, I did an interview with a national news story, like with my little Bible in my lap, talking about how we'd already forgiven um, the shooter and how, you know, we hung walls in the sign, we forgive you because Jesus forgave us. And so like, there was like this really big story about our community, about how we forgave and healed and moved on in the national media that, I mean, we've received a lot of support for that, obviously, particularly from religious communities, but to watch that play out over the decades and to see that like, no, you don't just check forgiveness off your list or check healing off your list and be like, we're done, moving on. And to see how we have continued to to process and deal with this event as a community over time has been really interesting. To me, it was really a learning experience to talk to the survivors from Texas from 1966. 
you know, just because many of them haven't really started talking about it until Parkland happened. Wow. I think that really kind of gave them, you know, some opportunity to come forward. But you also had some, obviously, that were talking about it, um, you know, anyway, prior to, to Parkland, obviously. But it's just really fascinating to me when they talked about the idea of survivor's guilt, um, you know, and also talked to, you know, just some of the things that we take for granted, you know, for example, you know, one of the, the contributors was talking about how, you know, the, the, they didn't have ambulances during that time, like we do now. So they were actually using hearses <gasps> as, as ambulances. Wow. So, you know, it's, you know, it, it's just a very different, you know, just, you know, culture. And this was a time like, you know, when there were, when there weren't SWAT teams, you know, so you had the the police, you know, running up there and doing that. So it's very interesting if you look at it just, you know, generationally. Yeah. Kind of the resources that were available then and now. So it's it's quite fascinating. Well, and it's interesting. I have this like new component of survivor's guilt, which I'm going to call activist guilt. Like there's a part of me that's like, did we not push the conversation hard enough like the Parkland kids did? Could we have helped somebody if we pushed harder, if we'd been more outspoken, if we'd done more direct action? Like, you know, to I was so angry because we had another shooting in our community. We have literally second generation school shooting survivors in my community now. And, you know, everyone was shocked and heartbroken. I was just pissed off. I was just like, you know what? Why is everybody so surprised? Like, we changed anything. We didn't change anything, and we expected different results. And so, like, I have this, like, weird, like, activist guilt because those kids, I think, pushed the conversation and the movement. Now, I think it was it was a confluence of really good funding, organization after Sandy Hook, social media, and all these changes. But I don't think you can discount the power and like the just the visceral anger. But their anger wasn't just this happened to us. It's that you see it's still happening and no one's doing anything. And so it's happening to us in the face of like, whereas we were so, you know, we were still so shocked. And I think you still, I bet in the, particularly with Texas, like what they're dealing with is that it's not something everyone is acknowledging as this ongoing problem. Do you know what I mean? Like, because they weren't as yeah. prominent after you know, even though that is still one of the like top 15 most deadly school shooting, mass shooting events in the country is still UT Austin from 1966. Was it Austin? Oh, is that yeah. right? Am I right? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So one of the things that we came across time after time after time is that activist guilt that you mm-hmm. just mentioned. Um, I worked specifically with the schools. Lauren and I divided the schools and she worked with Texas and Virginia Tech and a lot of the secondary schools. And I worked with some of the high schools. So I worked with Thurston and Heath and Columbine and, you know, they were right in a row there. And I heard over and over and over again from survivors. I wish we did more. Why didn't we solve this? Why didn't we fix this? And to somebody from the outside, I mean, I'm I'm the same age as all of you. I was a freshman in college when Columbine happened or sophomore, regardless. But I'm the same age. So as somebody coming into this from the outside, my mind was blown that any of you who survived a school shooting felt that you owed us, the rest of the country, anything. And I was and I I remember talking with Jamie Amo. She's a survivor from Columbine. And she she wrote a beautiful piece about feeling guilty that she didn't, quote unquote, fix this for her children and I remember saying to her, like, we owed this to you. You didn't owe this to us. 
So that is very common that it's, you're right, it's a, a different way of looking at survivor's guilt, but it's it's very prevalent amongst those schools. Yeah, I mean, I think you see it because we're all having kids now. You know, our kids are going to school and we're thinking like, you know, what should we have done? Like, it, it, and I think you feel like when in the midst of it, you're everyone, you're like, okay, surely you will see our suffering and the fact that this seems to be getting worse and do something about it. And it's just so heartbreaking to feel like nothing's happening, especially when you go through something like that. I cannot fathom how the, the parents at Sandy Hook feel because that's so, you know, just, it's like just a totally other level. And the fact that nothing happened after that. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's the thing, though. I try to really push on that, though. I don't think nothing happened. I think you I saw. Right. I think nothing happened. I think right. that the moms demand action and that that organization and that sort of grassroots, well-funded grassroots is why you see, I mean, they're just, they're just laying the groundwork. It's not gonna, you know, that's gonna, that's gonna happen over time. And it's really interesting to see as someone who's watched it for so long. I mean, like I went to the Million Mom March with my mother and a friend of mine and her mother, like after, you know, that was like post Columbine, the organization and the activism that happened post Columbine. And to see like sort of what happened and like kind of the rise and fall of these different groups. Mm-hmm. And like this feels different to me as somebody who's been in it for a long time. Yeah. And I, I think you bring up a really good point to Sarah, you know, about just survivorship and kind of mm-hmm. what that trajectory has been like, you know, in America. Because I, I see a lot of the same things, especially happening with, you know, survivors of rape and also women that and I know I was in that that group of women that didn't, you know, I didn't report and I felt, I still feel so much guilt, you know, because you go, well, it's going to keep happening. You know, if I don't, if I don't report, if I don't do something like that idea of taking action, yeah, you know, as a part of your, of your healing process of your survivorship of kind of being a part of that, that larger community. And I think right now what's happening, at least from what I've been seeing from my own point of view, I I've really been noticing kind of this, I don't know if appreciation is the right word, but, you know, acknowledgement of what it means to be a survivor, you know, mm-hmm. or the totality of what it means to be a survivor and all of the the webbing that comes with that, you know? So, and I think that you see a lot of that in terms of the, you know, Moms Demand Action and, and you know, a lot of organizations and different movements Um, that are starting to come up across the country. Did you see any other patterns or did you notice anything interesting as you took in all these survivor stories and not necessarily with regards to activism, but just, um, you know, the decisions they make or how they felt about their own stories or um, how their um, opinions and perspectives were either honored or not honored or how they just, how that, that identity played out um, across a, a broad expanse of experiences? Well, I think one of the things that you talked about is the forgiveness piece of it. And that was something that was really fascinating to me in terms of how, you know, how everybody forgives and, you know, but forgiving in terms of if you come from a religious community, mm-hmm. you know, and one of the communities that we worked with was West Nickel Mines, the shooting at West Nickel Mines. And, one of the things that was really, you know, prevalent in, in kind of that national conversation after that shooting was the rate at which the Amish forgave the shooter. 
and the rate at which the community really came together. And when I went up to go visit with some of the families, you know, one of the things that they told me, which I thought was incredibly shocking, was, you know, I when I asked them about this idea of forgiveness and how fast they were able to forgive and, and move on. And, and he said to me, you know, I don't know if I would have felt the same way if the shooter were to live. Mm. And I said, you know, well, why is that? You know, and he had said to me, well, there's revenge. Yeah. And I think that's, you know, probably a very natural reaction if you've been hurt you know, to want to take some kind of action, but to hear it from some, somebody, especially from this man was like, you know, kind of considered an elder of this community for him to say that was really shocking because it wasn't part of the narrative that was being told about that shooting. Yeah. So for me, that was a big eye opener that there's this private space versus public space. We will be right back after this short message from our sponsor. We are special breakfast people here at Pantsuit Politics, but not just when Beth and I are on the road. The truth is I want something warm from the oven every Saturday morning and Sunday morning. It's just the truth. It makes it feel special, makes it feel exciting. I don't want to work at it. So the first time I ever saw Wild Grain, which is bake from frozen subscription box for sourdough breads, fresh pastas, and artisanal pastries. I was obsessed. You guys, I've been a member for over a year. It's amazing. It's so easy. Every item bakes from frozen in 25 minutes or less. No thawing required. You can fully customize your wild grain box. You can choose any combination of breads, pastas, pastries. You can even build a box of only breads, only pastas, or only pastries if you'd like. And for a limited time, you can get $30 off the first box, plus free croissants in every box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit to start your subscription. Sometimes I make one single croissant just for me because I want to feel special and they're so good. You heard me. Free croissants in every box and $30 off your first box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit. That's wildgrain.com slash pantsuit. Or you can use promo code pantsuit at checkout. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Can I get something off my chest? Every day I feel a little pang of sadness. Because I think about Griffin going away to college. Y'all, he's a freshman in high school. This is not healthy or normal. This is why I have it on my list of things to talk to my therapist about. We all carry around these things, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us. Therapy is a safe space to get these things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapist anytime for no additional charge. You gotta get it off your chest. And you can get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash pantsuit today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash pantsuit. Looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life? Aura frames are beautiful, Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. It's super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving an Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. You guys, I love my Aura frames. I have one in my office. I have one in my kitchen. I have given one as a housewarming gift. I have given one as Mother's Day. 
Father's Day. They are the most amazing gifts because this app is a game changer, in my personal opinion, in digital frames. It makes it so, so easy to get the pictures on there and even videos. It plays like you're in Harry Potter, you guys. It is the best. I love mine so much. And right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A frames.com. Use code Pantsuit at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. it's so interesting not just whether the shooter survives but also whether or not there's a trial because i think what happened in our community was the basically the community leaders got together and decided we didn't need to go through a trial That's, that's pretty much the long and short of it and so what i found myself learning as an adult and that i think i would have had a better um understanding and perspective of had there been a trial was that this simple narrative that he was sick and we should forgive him, which really, I didn't f- ever feel a lot of anger um, towards our shooter. Like it was just definitely like he's sick and that is true. He is diagnosed schizophrenic. Like, you know, he was sick, but at the same time, I, when I became an adult, I read, there was a book where I can't remember the name of it, but they, where they go and they like, they tell the detailed stories of several shootings and ours was one of them. And like hearing about how many people knew, how many people he told, how the presence of guns in our community, just the the quotidian nature of guns really contributed to this. And like it just but I didn't know any of that because there hadn't been a trial, you know, like I hadn't heard those perspectives. I hadn't heard that story of what the detailness, like the details of what happened. And hearing all that really shifted this like narrative I'd been telling myself that he was sick and there was nothing we could do. And then I hear all these details and I'm like, that's not true. You know, like that's not what happened. There was a lot going on here beyond a very troubled person. You Thurston survivors that wrote about the re-traumatization of having to go every time he's up for parole and mm-hmm. test against him again. Wow. So there's that aspect of it too. You know, yeah. Constantly- putting that wound. And it's just so, there's such a complexity of experience. I would always tell people, I'm so glad we went to school the next day because we needed to be together because nobody understood what we were going through. Well, that was very easy for me to say as a person that was in the parking lot. Right. Much harder for somebody who literally stood in the hallways and saw their friend get killed and then was asked to go stand in that spot less than 24 hours later. Something we would never do for another victim of violence. And so like, you know, that's, again, that's an age thing. One of the most powerful things I ever heard. And I think it's the the trauma of a school shooting in particular is from a therapist who said, you know, the problem with something happens to you when you're young is that you don't have the tools to deal with it. And so as you grow and you develop new tools, you just have to process it again. Like you just, and now I don't, I don't feel at 38 that I'm reprocessing this in the way that I did from the age of 16 to probably 26 or 27, but there were a good 10 years where I had to just develop another layer of tools and understanding and reprocess and reprocess. And that's like, that's the brutality of these experiences Mm -hmm. as a teenager or a young person is like, you just don't have the capacity to fully 
take it in and and process it at that young of an age. Yeah. And especially asking to do that with parole hearings and trials and going to the buildings and all that. And it's such a personal experience. Like we have two uh, people who wrote from the JCC in California and they were both shot. Uh, Josh Stepakoff was six when he was shot. Mindy Finkelstein was his camp counselor and she was 16. Both of them were told at the same meeting years and years later by another school shooting victim's mother, you speak for my daughter. You speak for my daughter who cannot. And what was interesting is Mindy, the older uh, victim, she saw that as I'm going to take this and I'm going to do something great with it. Like this is a gift bestowed upon me by this woman. And Josh saw it as this is somebody, you know, my life is being defined for me yep. from something that happened to me at six years old. And he was more resentful. Yeah. So it was interesting because same experience, same school, same, you know, being told the same thing. And they both viewed it in very different way. Oh, it's so that is like the truth. I look I look at all my friends and I, you know, have realized that a lot of us had very different reactions. It was, yeah, life is out of your control. So meh, like you just take what comes. And my reaction, which is life can change. It's out of your control. So do it. Take what you can take it because everything could change on a Tuesday. Whereas like they're just a, it's just a small, like it's just the smallest of shifts in their perspectives, which is everything could change. So just meh, float along. You know what I mean? And there's nothing right or wrong about either perspective. It's like total personality in a lot of ways. But it's so, I mean, we went through the same thing and we organized our life based on that experience in very different ways. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's so interesting. What else did you see that surprised you as somebody not having this experience, just really deep diving into all these? I mean, you're just, you're talking about such a wide array of ages, experiences, Mm -hmm. and perspectives. I mean, I think for me, and I, you know, we've been kind of writing about these experiences that, you know, I was expecting and not expecting things at the same time. I know that when I went to my therapist and had said, you know, this is the project that I'm, you know, undertaking. And she said to me, are you sure you want to do this with your history, with your own experience? Do you think that you're going to be able to do this? You know, and it was something that I really had to think about because a lot of times when you've gone through that kind of trauma, you have a tendency to either project, you know, your own experiences onto somebody else without even realizing that you're doing it, you know, doing this kind of pain transference, you know, Um, so it was really difficult for me, you know, and I, I think it was a learning experience in that it got me to think about what what was going on with me in relationship to what was going on with these survivors, you know, and also how important it is to, you know, to, to be able to talk about what we were going through mm-hmm. together, you know, having another partner there with you, because I don't think I was expecting it. I, you know, coming from like my body, my words, which was, you know, kind of a, a, more relaxed, I would say, or maybe a text that didn't bring up as, as much baggage for me that, that this was, you know, something that 
that really affected me to the point of where, you know, I, I still have to go to therapy for this. I still have to write about this. There are still things that are conversations with parents that I don't know how I feel about just yet. Mm. You know, um, you know, kind of like being pregnant myself right now and becoming a mom and, you know, replaying some of these stories in my head. Sometimes it's hard for me to take myself out of that and keep myself in my own life. Yeah. So it's, it's really, I wasn't prepared or really considered how much overall that this project was really going to kind of live inside of me for as long as it has been and probably for a very long time. And I, I agree. Um, I started getting involved with Moms Demand Action about three weeks after Sandy Hook. My daughters, I have twin girls, and they were six. They turned six two weeks before the shooting at Sandy Hook. So it just, it changed me as a mother, as a person, as an American. It just, it absolutely changed me. So it was really hard for me. Lauren and I both made the decision to to you know, be in therapy while we were working on this project. It's very and smart. it was really hard for me to not transfer that trauma to my children, to see them and not see, you know, Emily Parker or, you know, yeah. some of the kids that were killed. And it, it's really, I had to make like conscious decisions to keep the work that I was doing separate from them. Um, they're 12 now. And I've, I've spoken to them about school shootings, but not to the extent that, you know, I want to, or I'm comfortable with yet. Yeah. So, and mostly because I can't even bring myself to tell them that nothing was really done about this mm -hmm. after everything that had happened. It's almost like an embarrassment. So, um, I, I had to make a real conscious choice to keep this away from them. And that was very, very difficult. It's really interesting. I'll be out. I can't wait to read the book and listen to, and take in all these perspectives slowly. This will not be a quick wait, great, quick read for me. Um, but with my boys, like it's so interesting. I have friends who did not attend Heath, whose children have a lot of anxiety about school violence and mine yes. don't. And I, there's a part of me that wonders if, you know, I never hid it from them. They've known about it since they were very, very little, but their orientation to it is, it happened to my mom and my mom is fine and she's here raising me and she's my mom. Right. You know, like it's a really different orientation to it than most kids receive. Yeah. I don't talk about it. I talk about it as a very sad thing that changed my life and that we need, that is, that is dangerous, but I don't think I talk about it in a way that I think it's scary. And I don't know if that's the difference. Um, I've never been like, I just, I always talk about it as a way that's like, it was a big thing in my life and it was sad, but I don't really talk to them about that. They need to be scared. It, it's, it's a tough decision. It's a really tough. It's really tough. And I don't know if I'm gambling. Like, I don't know if there's a part of my subconscious that was just gambling. Like it happened to me. It couldn't happen to my kids. Even though now I know that's not true. I literally have friends who happened to their children in Marshall County. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, you know, I don't know if that it's not, I don't, it's something I think about every time they leave the home for a school. Mm -hmm. um, well, and this is, this is the conundrum of an American mother. Right. Is, do I re traumatize my children by explaining that this can happen by, you know, talking about what danger they are in, in their schools, or do I play the odds game and pray to God that doesn't happen? Well, now it's out of, now it doesn't even matter with the active shooter drills. It doesn't matter. You can't keep them from it. 
because they're going to have to do these drills at school. And one thing we've learned with a lot of the recent shootings, the Santa Fe, the Parkland, the Marshall County shootings, is that, you know, a lot of these kids are just running on instinct. They don't remember in those moments what to do. I mean, I... I'm a big advocate for the drills in terms of staff and faculty and teachers and principals, but I really struggle with, you know, traumatizing my 12 year olds to learn how to survive a shooter in their seventh grade classroom when it might not be necessary. You know, I think our school system made the decision. I think the teachers did the trainings before the kids got there this year. So yeah. that that the teachers are, and it's, and it's still, you know, when you say a drill, it's not something you do once every six months. When you look at military drills or police drills, it's, it's you have to teach your like lizard brain to react like that. Yeah. And that's something that's like a massive amount of repetition to achieve that kind of result. So yeah. the idea that they're, we're going to pop a five-year-old through a drill once a semester yeah. and it's going to yeah. have any effect is just making, there's so many things like, the shift in perspective from being a teenager, seeing the adults do these things and rolling my eyes because I thought, oh, yeah, clear backpacks really going to make a difference. Yeah. And seeing that seeing it as an adult and realizing like why they were reacting like that as a parent, because you just want to think I did everything. But we're so there's a really good book. I don't know if you've ever heard of Emily Oster. You should if you're pregnant, you should absolutely read her book, Expecting Better. It's the only pregnancy book I ever recommend. Um, she's an economist. And so she understands what studies are good based on their structure, which studies aren't good. And she just talks about like so much of our advice and particularly is just sort of like a a mix of like old wives tales and junk science. Um, but with parents, she's got a new book called crib sheets. And she's like, as parents, we're just so bad at assessing risk. We're just really, really bad at assessing risk and which of our behaviors will actually mitigate the risk. And so to be to be purchasing a bulletproof backpack and then and not like being concerned with car safety. Right. First of all, doesn't make a lot of sense. Uh-huh. And second of all, that's not even going to mitigate the risk that you're thinking about. You know, like it's just we're just bad at it. We're just bad at it yeah. as parents and as human beings. Sarah and I have talked many times about our desire to age as gracefully as possible. And skincare is a huge piece of that. I spend a lot of time and money thinking about my skin and I have added Ritual to my routine, which just gives me a lot of comfort. Ritual is here for us. They have created a wrinkle support skin supplement and conducted clinical studies. So we know it's working. They're taking the guesswork out of skincare. Ritual Hyacera is one of several Ritual products that I love. I take the daily multivitamin, I take a probiotic and Hyacera is that once daily skincare supplement that is clinically proven to reduce wrinkles and fine lines and increase skin smoothness in 90 days. I recently met a friend for the first time in person as opposed to online. And we were discussing the fact that I am 43 and she said, I cannot believe how young you look. And I thought, thank you Ritual for that. Start Hyacera to help minimize wrinkles without compromising on clean science. Hyacera from Ritual is a clinically proven skin supplement you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com slash pantsuit. Start Ritual or add Hyacera to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash pantsuit for 25% off. There's not much worse than a dry energy scalp. Also, when you get your hair colored and then it does not last as long as you and your stylist discussed, it could be that unfiltered, mineral-filled water is the culprit. 
Hard water is a leading cause of damaged hair and dry, irritated skin, and about 85% of the United States uses hard water, filled with dissolved minerals and added chlorine. That's where Canopy's new filtered shower head comes in. Canopy, known for their beauty hacks and reimagined humidifier, has revolutionized the filtered shower head. Dermatologists recommended this unique three-stage filtration system greatly reduces contaminants and odors in your shower water, leaving you with healthy hair and glowing skin. Best of all, the Canopy filtered shower head is hassle-free. Installation is a breeze, and its unique quick-release filter replacement feature allows for seamless filter replacement unlike any others on the market. Go to getcanopy.co to save $25 on your Canopy filtered showerhead purchase today with Canopy's hassle-free filter subscription. Even better, our listeners can use code Pantsuit at checkout to save an additional 10% off your Canopy purchase. Hurry, your hair and skin will thank you. Do you want a bra that's sexy or a bra that's comfortable? Thanks to Third Love, you can have both. Third Love was started to take all the frustration, ick, and ugh out of bra shopping. That's why they make solutions for every bra problem, aka problems. Their bras make it easy to bring back perkiness you haven't seen since high school, get smoothing you know where, and have straps that actually stay put. Designed at their headquarters in San Francisco and made from premium materials, they put every style through hours of wear testing on real women, including themselves, before it's given the stamp of boob approval. Comfort and support are guaranteed. Plus, whether you're a double A cup or an H cup, their virtual fitting room will help you find your perfect fit fast. And they've even invented half cups. No more feeling stuck between two cup sizes that don't fit right. It's time to get your problems solved. Visit thirdlove.com and get 15% off your order with code PODCAST15. Well, and I think, too, you also have to look at it's it's interesting, you know, and, and going back to, um, you know, the the folks that were there at the UT Austin, you know, shooting that if you look back, you know, historically, when we you know, when I was talking to them, you know, we were talking about, you know, the drills, et cetera. You know, they brought up, well, you know, we had to do it when we did the duck and cover drills. You know, oh, yeah. The, the threat of the, the Cold War. And the kids know, were like, how is this going to help us? The yeah, duck? And, but, <laughs> but, you know, he, he, he told, you know, a couple of them, you know, and including, you know, when I talked about this with my father had said, you know, how traumatizing yeah. it was for them too. You know, like we don't like look at that, you know, that piece as well. Like, but I, I think, you know, it's, it's something that's kind of been going on in this country for a while. Like a lot of this kind of fear, but the difference there is the difference there is they're not dropping nukes on Canada or Texas. Yeah. This is happening. Yeah. Yeah. So true. What I'm saying is that, you know, that there, there was, it was still a traumatic experience for for those students. And it was still something that they lived with, you know, for a very long time, like that, that threat. And I'm, I'm, I'm talking about that, you know, as living with when you're under threat, Yep. how do you, how do you react to that? Yeah. Yeah. It's so hard. And that kind of threat that's so amorphous and. Well, it's intangible. Like you can't, you don't, you know, it's, it's abstract. Mm-hmm. It's it's nothing that you can really, you know, it, like if I know something is like going to come at me, you know, like I, maybe I have a chance of moving away from it, 
you know, but it's, you know, it, it's kind of like one of the things that I, I hate to like bring it to, you know, but, you know, a lot of my family, you know, my husband's family in the military, you know, one of the things that I, I was talking to a friend about who was at the Battle of Fallujah was saying, you know, all of this training that we did to protect ourselves meant, you know, really meant nothing and had yeah. everything to do with just yeah. luck yep. when yep. we were there, you know, because you, you know that it's coming, but how do you assess the threat in that way where you know, know that you're going to be safe? And I think just that fear of, am I going to be safe? You know, and I think about that as going through a rape and even being in strange places or, you know, how am I going to protect myself when I know that there are threats out there, but I can't really see it all the time? Well, I think that this book is so valuable right now because I do see as someone who's been watching this for a long time, for better, or for worse, I think the increase in mass shootings in environments outside of a school has shifted the conversation. I think particularly the proximity and time of El Paso and Dayton, two very different locations that stretch across the country and two places that you don't need to have little kids to be thinking about all the time. Everybody goes to Walmart, okay? And everybody goes to bars. So I think, or most everybody. And so I think that like those, those, those locations, it, 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 you know, pushed it to a place where people realize, oh, like, this is just, this is going to get closer to me and closer to me and closer to me and closer to me. And so I think having these perspectives and this book out here right now for people to go to and understand, like, what is this? This doesn't stop when the cameras stop rolling. This doesn't mean, this doesn't change. This keeps affecting people long after there's another mass shooting that's soaking up all the oxygen in the national narrative. And so I just, I thank you guys so much for putting this together for reaching out to the survivors for asking me to contribute like i think it's going to be so powerful and i i really i just can't thank you enough thank you sarah we really so i mean it it's been the hardest year of our lives i would say lauren probably but also the most rewarding mm-hmm. i mean it's been an amazing experience and i was i just want to say i was very lucky to have lauren to go through this with because we had many shared phone calls with tears and and just you know the vicarious trauma that we experienced through this and it's our hope that you know now we're doing a fundraising campaign to send a copy of this book to every sitting senator love it because it's our hope that once they read this book they will feel the same way yeah. and people can people can find that fundraiser on our website which is if i don't make it the book.com and tell us where else they can um, find the book and promote the book. You know, they can go on Twitter. Um, they can go on Facebook, um, you know, and right now it's also available on, you know, Bar- uh, Barnes & Noble, Amazon, Skyhorse Publishing website, you know, pretty much anywhere where, where books are, are being sold with the release being September 3rd. All right. Thank you guys so much for coming on the show and sharing your perspective. Yeah, thank yeah. you. Thank you so much to Amy and Lauren and Sarah for that powerful conversation. Again, the website is if I don't make it the book.com and there is a GoFundMe campaign to make sure that every senator gets a copy of this important work. You can follow along on Twitter at if I don't the book. 
We will be back in your ears on Wednesday over at The Nuanced Life. If you want to listen to us discuss things outside politics and commemorations from important moments of life beyond the funerals and the birthdays and the retirements and the weddings, join us over there. And then until then, we will be back at Paint Suit Politics on Friday. And until then, keep it nuanced, y'all. Dylan Garvin produces Pantsuit Politics every week. Thanks for making us sound better, Dylan. Elise Knapp is our managing director, which means we could not make it without her scheduling, organization, feedback, and creativity. Thank you, Elise. We couldn't make Pantsuit Politics without support from our listeners. Go to patreon.com slash pantsuitpolitics to learn how you can receive more nuance and help us make the show. Special thanks to our executive producers who have committed to supporting us in a major life-giving way. Our executive producers are Tracy Putoff, Tim Miller, David McWilliams, Joshua Allen, Linda Rucker, Martha Bernatsky, Melanie Cravey, and Tiffany Hassler. Our theme music is composed and performed by Dante Lima. The music under our ads is composed and performed by Dylan Garvin. Learn more about our lives, live events that we're involved in, and what we're reading each week by signing up for our weekly newsletter at pantsuitpoliticsshow.com. And connect with members of the Pantsuit Politics community by following us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter.